In his first major in-depth interview, it's a privilege to be sitting down with today's special guest, legendary Australian businessman and founder Ian Maloof. Ian, privilege and, and a pleasure having you on the series, as I mentioned. Thanks again for the, for the opportunity. I thought we'd open our discussion by briefly exploring your background. You grew up in Sydney's eastern suburbs to a family of four and have previously, previously said that by no means was my father an overly wealthy man, but he brought us up well. Perhaps take us through the early part of your life, if you could, and, and the sort of environment you grew up in being Australia in the 1970s and 1980s. Well, thanks for saying good day, Rob. It's nice to, uh, nice to have you here and looking forward to the next hour. So, born in the eastern suburbs, no, uh, born in Wollongong. My parents started in the country, um, dad, in uh, dad in Canoundra, mum in Coonabarabran, and they had a tragedy up there with, on, on mum's family side, actually, and... Uh, and they, they left. So by, by cruising down, no complaints about that, by the way, right? So I was born in Wollongong on the way, and then as a toddler, I ended up in Sydney. And I think we bounced from Coogee to Maroubra, or Maroubra to Coogee to, then Dad built a house in Bellevue Hill, the family home, built it brick by brick. Wow. So he was a builder by background and a wheeler and dealer of all sorts. But, so he built that house, and, and I remember camping in the front yard with him at a very young age. And, uh, while it was being built, so, so fond memories of that with Dad. So we built it and he still lives there today at the age of 93, so all power to him, what's good. And as I understand it, you attended St Joseph's College graduating in 1983. What was Ian Maloof like as a, as a student back then? <laughs> you'd have to... Ian Maloof as a student would be... You'd have to ask the teachers. I think that they'd, that'd be a mixed review on that. <laughs> As a student, I was, I, was, I was easy distracted. I'm sure that I was an undiagnosed ADD. Still am. <laughs> so as a student, I think um, I was good at cramming at the end. So loved my sport, loved Joey's. Great school, like amazing school. Great friendships. So the, the board was full boarding back then. So you got in there and you got along, surrounded by country boys, all right? So if you're a smart ass, they'd thumped you. So it was a very good grounding. And it was, it was, look, it was great. As a student, I did my best, enjoyed it. I uh, didn't study as hard as I should have, but no complaints now, that, that seems to be okay, but <clears throat> it's a good education. You do need your education, so it was good. And post high school, I believe you enrolled in a Bachelor of Law degree. What, what, where was the interest in, in law? What was that decision prompted by? Oh, I think it was just, in, in hindsight, definitely the right course. So for not, maybe not to practice, but to have that in your business, your business life, it's definitely a good course to have. But it only lasted six weeks, so I don't think I'm a, a real academic in that regard. It was competing interest nearly straight away. I'd bought a small truck at the same time as law sort of began. So I left school in, I left school in, uh, whenever it finishes, November of 83. Get out, have a good time. Down the local, the Oak in Double Bay. <laughs> and, uh, but you gotta start doing something. So I worked pretty well straight out of school. So I go and uh, get a job at Dinkum Fair, which my dad was running at the time. So turning that business around. And I had a lot of labouring work there, earning 250 bucks a week, and I was really happy. It was great, really good fun work. Then all that work ran out, so Dad puts me on the floor and start, I start selling underpants and that type of stuff, to, which wasn't for me. And also the wage drops down to 125 bucks a week, and the tax back then was 1250. That's how well you remember this stuff, right? So I, a half pay cut and not as interesting a job was, was probably, you know, made me a pretty bad employee. And I used to hide and run off to the pub and do all sorts of things like that. But uh, I think Dad fired me every other day. And then um, in the end, then I bought this uh, small truck. So I was able to save, save up a little bit of money from all of that, living at home, 
it's not too hard to save if you want to. And then I bought a little truck. Law starts to kick in at the same time. Six weeks later, because working all day and trying to get work and studying all night was, was not, was not going to work. So I had to choose one, much to my mum's you know, dismay or dislike. I chose the truck. The truck's, you know, it's not the most glamorous thing in the world. For me, it was just great. Started off with a small tabletop truck, so it started very hard, like it didn't even tip, so I had to shovel a load on, shovel a load off. You start to learn, wow, you know, how, how things can be easier. When the day I bought a tipper, it was like really technology at its best where the load tipped off and I was able to drive out in five minutes instead of stay there for an hour and a half shoveling the load off. So lots of learnings in the early part, but the, yeah, the competing interests were that the truck versus uni and the truck won, and I'm quite happy it did. And why, why waste management and, and disposal? What was the opportunity that you saw to go out and buy that first truck? Oh, look, I don't think you... I don't know if at that age if you see the opportunity, really. I saw a truck could go and knock on the, knock on a door and pick up some rubbish. That, that, that was the opportunity. So making it from there, and then you put two and two together and you actually came out with a profit. So you go and pick up something, drive it to the tip, and it was as simple as that. And at the end of the day, did you have some money left? And you didn't. So back in those days, I might have made $100 by the end of the day, and it was a lot of money. I could go out. I feel like my father now, where they tell you they went to the, you know, went somewhere and bought a pack of, pack of smokes and a beer for, for, for less than two quid. Well, if you go back for 10 bucks, you could go out and have plenty of beers and a pack of cigarettes. And so, so there it is here on my father now telling my, the stories back again. So that's what it was like. So to, to go out and do something, spend 10 bucks and end up with 90 bucks, I cannot tell you how much money that was back then. It was a lot. And what was your pitch? So you're going door to door selling this, this sort of service in Sydney. What was, your, what was your pitch? It must have honed your salesmanship skills, but, but how did you get through the door and, and get them to actually take you on as a service? How to get the work was actually very easy. Uh, dirty job, had a truck, and it's not hard to find rubbish. You see it, so you'd knock on the door and say, can I take, take your rubbish away? And it was either yes or no, but why wouldn't they, right? So it's just a function of price. From there, it's like, oh, by the way, can you clean my gutters? By the way, can you do this? So it was started to be, we'd, I'd just do anything. So from there, it was even at the stage where, so I started to make a bit of a go of it. Mum and Dad, when I first bought that truck, actually thought, what the hell's he doing, right? So it was like, whoa, this is not, this is not good. <laughs> but to their credit and to, to a lot to everything, I made a go of it. And in, 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 in doing that, they, they jumped in. When, when I couldn't pay wages, Dad would help me shovel load on the truck. When I couldn't pay wages, Mum would help me, uh, would answer the phones. That's how it started. They didn't throw money at me, and they probably didn't have the money to throw at me, but, and, and, it's, and it's just as well they didn't, because everything I learned about my mechanical background and, and, and all the things I learned were from things breaking or mistakes, and you learn them hard when it's coming out of your pocket. You learn them proper, and you learn them once, and that was, that was the great, I think, um, strength of my family, where they were just really helpful. So, you know, I might go and be asked to do, to another, do another job, and I'd do it. Anything with a truck, I would do. So one day then, I'm, I'm, uh, my cousin calls me and he says, can, uh, can you move my house? He happens to live on the top story of an apartment and he's removing to another top story apartment. So we did that that day and that was when I knew I would never go into removalists. Never go into removalists. So it was, <laughs> it was a hard experience. Refrigerators upstairs, all that sort of stuff. So that was what a life's learning and it's only a mistake if you make it twice. I never moved another home from that day. And then, but then on the other side of it, on the flip side, we started, I started to do some paving or stuff. Well, I didn't really. Dad was a builder, so he could pave and he could do that. People wanted that. And then that started to become a business in itself. And my brother at the time was working for AGC at the time. So Craig's working for AGC. He's in an office job doing all that sort of stuff, doing great. And I said, mate, there's a business here. Maybe you should have a think about it. So next thing you know, Dial a Paver starts. Craig 
starts dial a paver and off he goes and he paved for many, many years. And how did you go about navigating the growth? So you've, you started, as you said, $700, one, one tip a truck. You move into these other ancillary services. How different was it and, and how hard do you have to work in order to be able to grow a business of that scale? It's just hard work. You just work if you want to work. If you want to work seven days a week and you want to do more than the other guy, you're going to, you're going to win, right? You've got to be smart. So from one truck you go to two. Like I say, a big progression was going from a truck that was a tabletop truck that didn't tip to a truck that did tip. That was my next truck. Right? And I can tell you that truck was $4,000 back then. Right? So I remember all this stuff. Right? So it's, they're milestones in my life. Right? Then I bought a Bobcat. I bought a Bobcat, um, which was obviously you know, an elect a mechanical loading shovel, as we'd all know. And the first job I went on to, I'd never driven one. And I had to, I had to get paid by the client and pretend I'd driven one. Right? So I did OK. And that, that was sort of my life of learning everything as I went. The first time I bought a, drove a manual truck, was when I bought one. It was my first truck. I'd never driven anything manual. Had the old three on the tree, and uh, I'll never forget that, ex that as well. So buying then the equipment and, and moving into these areas was, 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 was progression. What, what got me there and whatever was just a willingness to work. So it's just hard work. So I haven't changed in that regard. So a, business is pretty simple. If you want to work hard and you want to provide your customers with a good service and good value, that's all you have to do. It doesn't matter, doesn't matter what business you're doing. It's the same principle. Do you still see a desire from younger generations that, that want to work harder, that would take those sort of risks and go into waste management? I mean, it's not a particularly glamorous sort of industry or sector. Do you, do you think there's been a generational change at all? Uh, the generation of, of, um, of how you make money now is, is, is confused, I think. There's different ways. I mean, you, everyone's driving, driving for the, to work less hours, do this and do that, and that's fine. You know, it's called work-life balance. That's fine, but... I, my position was that I, I worked and I missed a lot of my sort of friends things, 21st and that as I was growing up and if I went out I would fall asleep at dinner. I couldn't get through dinner without falling asleep. We were in a restaurant so not ideal, uh, maybe not ideal for my wife now who was going out with me you know, all my life, right? So I was probably a really, really bad date and, and uh, to say the least and I'm sure that she'd reinforce that. But that was how it was. I worked really hard. Um, so I missed some of my childhood things and I still had a good time don't get me wrong I didn't go overseas until I got married the age of 26 my first trip overseas things like that I didn't get to do younger but now at a part of my life now I get to choose what I do or don't do so that was the trade-off so and the time moves pretty quick so now if you want to work four days a week three days a week that's great all right if you want to work seven days a week you're just going to get there faster and everyone knows the power of compounding if I've got ten dollars more today that rolls for twice as long I'm going to be better off so with hard work comes a good result. You can't teach smart though. If you're stupid, it doesn't matter how hard you work, you've got to work smarter as well. But there's lots of different avenues now how you, how you make money and, and, and there's a combination of all of that. It's not just a matter of just working or labouring. That's part of it to, be, to be, have a willingness to do that. The, the, um, the, the, the part is where you, um, you know, what you invest in or what you do. So where I was lucky enough, I had a business that could then roll, could roll forward and, uh, and, and then needed land to start recycling and do all those types of things and then being able to get a piece of land was a very in hindsight a very big deal so I ended up being a large landowner because of my business. Dad gave me the best saying I think ever back then and you don't understand some of these things till you get a little bit older and it was just he just said one good investment's worth a lifetime of hard work and it sums up everything it's it's very true it's as simple as that but I had a funny joke with him one day right because he he again being a builder and that he built the North Wollongong shopping centre now, Wollongong's an area that didn't go up in price. In fact, it probably went back in price uh, over a decade. 
And I turned to him one day and I said, <laughs> I said, for God's sake, Dad, why did you, why did you build the, the uh, North Wollongong Shopping Centre instead of Chatswood Shopping Centre? And he said, don't knock it, son. It got you through a private school, right? So, so it's a good, good statement. And <laughs> but uh, so Dad, Dad was a, a great influence on me. So was Mum. They were, they were, they were, they were a huge credit to my um, success and grounding. They're good at knocking my feet back onto the ground when I, when I thought I was bigger than my boots, uh, which was good. That was Mum's great strength. I think Mum was the real matriarch of our family. Very strong, very strong woman. So she'd passed many years ago, but her influence lives on, that's for sure. Extraordinary story. One, one more on the company's growth. When you're going through that rapid rise of, of growth from one vehicle to 55 vehicles, were, were you looking at organic growth or were you looking at growing through M&A opportunities, acquiring smaller waste management businesses? I know you were buying the waste management facilities including Eastern Creek, Alexandria and, and so on, but how did you navigate that growth from one vehicle to 55 and then eventual the sale to, to Bingo Industries in 2018? So you start with one, then, then mum and dad help me on the phones and, and on the trucks and stuff. Then you start, to, then you start to, to lose that probably beautiful moment in your life where you didn't have any employees. I'm not knocking it, you need people, but it was funny where you could go and earn 100 bucks and go to the pub afterwards and, 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 and see your mates and do that and you didn't have that ongoing need to look after everybody around you. So then you start employing people and the business starts to grow, your machinery starts to come in into play, then you've got safety aspects, you've got all these things. So then going to a few people is your first learning curve. I don't know what it is, but it's like going from 20 to 21 employees was like a completely massive change of business, the way you did it. And I think that chain, next change comes from at the 100 people mark. So I think 20, the, the systems we had to bring into place for 20, uh, just over 20 people took us through to 100. Get to 100, everything falls apart, you've got to crank up your systems, make it better, that takes you through to several hundred. Right, and then I end up in a business now that's got, and I won't take the credit for being CEO because I'm not, uh, which has a thousand people after we merge with Bingo. So, and the systems change again in, in a big way. Right? So managing people and safety and all that becomes a very, very large component of everything you do once you start employing anybody. So that, that growth path um, of business is one, getting the, people, getting the people underway. Then you've got to look at your assets and then you've got your major assets. So the milestones in my career were all lunatic tick events, I think, according to my opposition and that. So when you're doing something, you're an idiot or, or that was stupid. And the day after you've done it, you're a genius, right? Or maybe three weeks after. I think, I think those moments were buying the Alexandria landfill. Uh, it, was a, it was a big moment of a large land purchase for a large waste facility. Then uh, Eastern Creek facility, 120 odd hectares in 2006 was another major event. In both circumstances, I was told I'd pay too much. And if I didn't pay too much, then the other guy wouldn't have sold them. Right? And it's funny that I've always paid too much for property, but I've never, ever overpaid. So you can work that formula out all for yourself. Everyone's got to be happy in a transaction. That's what it really means. Um, and, and land served me very, very well. Been really lucky that I was able to work a business, grow a business, and it was able to make money. It fueled then the land, and the land, unbeknownst, starts to rise in value significantly. And, um, and we all know the value of land. People sometimes lose lose a likeness for land we just but, but because the business could fund me buying land the land became arguably larger than the business in many respects um, and it was it was important to have a freehold position wherever I was working my business from was was really really a great component of my um, achievements 
It must be said that prior to the sale of, of Bingo, it was a competitive industry as I understand it. There were some major global players, there's some major domestic players, Clean Away being one, Sewers the other, and of course Bingo Industries. How different or how did you go about differentiating the dialer dump industry's experience to, to those competitors and keeping your customers happy? Dealing with the multinationals wasn't, wasn't overly difficult. Right? We were small and nimble, looking for different ways of doing stuff difference in um, main component of our business was service and service and service that was it right? pricing is secondary service is paramount right and 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 the service that you're offering the, 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 the skip whatever you're offering has to be quality so if you ask me what order it goes in it's service quality and then the price right? no one likes to be priced out but at the end of the day I tell my guys all the time, if you, if you go down to it's freezing cold winter day, you've got to go down the road to get some milk, would you rather it be, you know, a 50 cents more than what, what it is somewhere else, or would you rather it not be on the shelf? So you've got to balance, you've got to balance what the price should be and to be able to and, and balance what is a good service. The service is always, in the case of milk, always having it on the shelf. And we're all the same. You want to turn up and you want to get what you want. With, with, with my business, it's simple. What's a good service for a bin company? To turn up when you say you'll turn up. To, to drop the bin or pick up the bin, to do the right thing with the waste in the bin. Right? It's a dirty job, but I just happen to like it. So um, it's great. So back when I started, it was probably a lot easier. Then the constraints came in, environmental levies came in, um, and lots and lots of you know, tightening of everything. Um, and that was just opportunity, and it made the business bigger. You can resist all that stuff, or you go with it. When the government puts its arms right into your business, it tends to make it bigger. You've just got to be willing to work out that, okay, well, how is this going to change my business rather than whinging about it, and, and you go with it. So the levy that was introduced in New South Wales is what made recycling, and New South Wales would arguably be the most successful recycling state in the country, I think by far, and that's because we have the highest levy. And if you measure it out without taking currency values into, into, into account, it's probably the highest levy in the world. But what that does is it promotes you not to landfill stuff, simple as that. And the levy promotes recycling and we, I think I was ahead of recycling, well ahead of it even when there was only a very small levy. A levy used to be 50 cents a truckload, I think. It was insignificant. I don't think it was even well accounted for. And now it's $150 a tonne. Right? So that's over a span of just under 40 years. That's significant. So that $150 a tonne, yes, it's, it's passed on to the consumer in many ways, but it's changed a lot of things, doing stuff smarter. And now it's, now it's demanded. Recycling's essential and you know there's a huge focus on all of this sort of stuff so to not move with it you're left behind you're out of business now. In mid to late 2018 it was announced that Bingo Industries had acquired Dialer Dump Industries in a 578 million dollar transaction with the flow and effect of you holding a 12% stake in Bingo and becoming a, a board member. Take us inside those discussions if you could. Did they approach you and, and what did you like about the offer in the management team at Bingo? <laughs> what do you like about your opposition to start? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. Uh, Bingo is a relatively new company compared to Dialer Dump. Um, so to ultimately have joined together was, 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 um, was, was a good result. Right? The, the companies hadn't overlapped too much in, in, um, in their assets or it would have never come about. Normally, I think, I think it's pretty simple when, you, when, you, when your opposition approach you to buy, your first time you say it is you tell them to F off, right? You don't want to know about it, right? So we... We, we had a couple of dances around that from time to time and never really spoke about it and I avoided it a lot. So, and look, I remember, I do remember how it came about. I'd had a discussion with Daniel 
we'd arranged a price. So it was pretty simple. I'm a bit of a back of the napkin guy. Like if it makes sense, fine. I'm not really wanting DD and everybody looks at each other's business and then tells you they're not going to buy it anyway. I would never do that with an opposition company. So to ever buy dial dump was always going to be have that challenge of how do you buy it without looking at it, right? So we went down a path there with a the conversation and I thought we'd agreed to deal. I said, go and see Chris, who was my CFO at the time, CEO at the time, and uh, of the business. And uh, if it pans out that what we're talking about's there, it's there. So I rang Chris and I said, here's what I've agreed. Actually, I took him the napkin. I said, here's the napkin. You, you know this off of napkins for me now. So, and it, it turns out, I get a phone call the next week and he said, it's not the same as the napkin. I said, tell him to get out of the office. That was six months before. So I think that from there, Daniel would ring me regularly and I would never pick up the call. And I, I do remember succinctly, I, I, he rang me one day and I've, I wasn't looking at who it was on the phone. I've picked up the phone, I've gone like that and I've got, oh, and I've gone to hang up and he goes, don't hang up. <laughs> and so I'm pretty sure an offer came through the phone at that point and that was enough to make me not hang up. And I said, righto, well, if we stick here, then we'll, then we'll get there. And we got there. And to say that, that we disliked each other is an understatement. Right? We're opposition. You've got to have an opposition. You've got to be pitted against someone. These guys came in on the scene probably only 10 years before. And to their credit, made massive growth, picked up good assets. The business is coming together. We haven't had an argument. We haven't had one crossword in all that time, which is a successful business. And the assets combined, combined well. We didn't have a, an overlap of assets. We had, we had sort of like the super sites. And, uh, and Eastern Creek in particular is that super site. And Bingo had more of the satellite assets. So the coming together of all that stuff was a good and clever combination. It's proven to, to, to be a great thing. And emotions when you sold the business, uh, relief, regret, celebration, victory. What, what was going through your mind in those initial months post-sale? It's a really good question. I don't think I've ever been asked that. Um, to my, what was going through my mind at the time? But it, I don't think anything changed for me. I was still a decent shareholder of second largest shareholder, apart from the uh, Tartak family, of the business. So I still had a very serious interest in the business and I still do, do today. Um, I was relieved of, in a way, relieved of, of the day-to-day -day burden of... of employees and, and, and that side of stuff to, to, to a degree. But I also had a very um, important sort of transitional period where I had 300 people that's coming into this business and we'd been arch pitted against each other for a long time. So causing that to be now as good a relationship as Daniel and I had was, was important for, for the company, for each other, for everybody involved. And most people took it well. A right? few people didn't. That, that's always the way, I'm sure, when things come together. But there's people there, still a massive core of people that are all still there together and that's, that's their business. But what changed, what changed for me was, was very little. You know, I still turn up when they need me and that I'm still on the board. Um, it's, I, think, I think then COVID kicks in. Difficult for any business. So I think I was quite grateful to, to probably... And I, I used to go to board meetings and, and um, in the bingo board meetings and there'd be reports on how we're handling COVID and everything we're doing. And I just <laughs> used to be very proud to be there because you just go, wow, we're handling this so well. But I was just the guy that was... I actually had nothing to do with it, but the team, at, the team in the business, in the bingo business, the way they've handled COVID and everything was extraordinary. So something that's new... I mean, I couldn't have even told you what a pandemic was if you asked me at the time. I would not have known the definition of what it was. Um, and I'm sure many wouldn't have. But for me, look, I've done lots of big deals. Sometimes you're a bit too exhausted at the end of them to, 
to really celebrate them. All right? Sometimes you might have a cup of coffee at the end of it. So it just, it just moves on. Deals are deals. And, and business is business. And business is a very important part of my life. Uh, I feel I'm pretty good at it, and so I like doing it. So it's just second nature to what, to what we do. And if you do a good deal, it's... Well, you, you, business is business. So no, no, no change, funnily enough. Might have been a change of where I thought a bit. You have a pretty decent number drop in your bank account. It's, uh, I think it's fun. Um, probably did a few different things. I bought, you know, one of my greatest purchases was, I was a guy who never bought homes, right? So I'm homeless for all my life. And well, that, that's not true. I bought, I bought one home in the year, the year escapes me, but it did probably around, no, sorry, when I, no, it doesn't escape me at all. In 2006, I bought a home. Um, it was the same time around when I'd bought the land at Eastern Creek or just before. And I bought Eastern Creek around 2006. So I decided at the time, I, don't, I hadn't owned the house very long, but I, I thought it was quite prudent that I should, and I'd paid a very large number for Eastern Creek, right? Very, it was a lot of money. And I decided that I should probably sell the house before the bank told me I should. So I was, I was quick off the mark to sell that. So I'd, I'd probably only had it for a couple of years and, and that was fine, no regrets on that. So I sold the house and really have not had a house ever since. Um, so the selling the business has been, um, I suppose the place I'm living in here at ANZ, this residence that I'm in, which you've been able to see around and whatever, like it's, you, you talk about an asset, there's, there's no amount of money that can get this off me, none. Breathtaking, breathtaking home. As soon as you walk in, did it, did it do just, just that, took your breath away and you knew that you had to have it? it absolutely. Yeah. I'd looked around a couple of places, we're looking around and I, and I thought, my wife said, she said, you know, Boydie's place is for sale. And I, and I went, oh, I forgot about that. So she said, we should have a look at it. So we did. So we teed it up for Friday afternoon at 3.30 to, to have a look at it. And I didn't turn up. And Larissa rings me and she says, where are you? And I went, I just forgot, right? I think I was down at Barangaroo at lunch having, having fun. So, so I've raced up, I've dropped everything, raced up, and I've walked in the, in the foyer, which again, you've been lucky enough to see. And you walk in, I saw that view out of there and I, part of which you can see behind here from my bedroom. <laughs> and I looked at it and I just, it blew me away at that point. So that was four o'clock Friday. By 9pm Saturday, we owned it. It was done. There was no, I woke up the next morning going, yeah, we're going to get this. It was, it's just one of those assets that, that you, I'm so proud to own. Like I say, it'll never, it'll never leave the family. So one chapter closes, but another opens in your new venture, Ahoy Club. Take us through, so you're in waste management, you decided to get into, into yacht chartering. As I understand it, you grew up on the water. The idea, I think, of, of moving into yacht chartering came to you at a, at a family dinner in 2015, but you took the plunge in, in 2018. What was the opportunity that you saw? I think you know my history better than me. <laughs> so you're right. In 2015, I bought Mischief. I went from a 72-foot boat, a princess, beautiful boat, had a great time. I've known that since 2002, I think it was. Had best time of my life on that all through my business life and family life. Then I tried to buy a 100-footer, I missed it. Then I tried to buy a 120-footer and I missed it and I went, oh damn, I'll go overseas and have a look what's around. So next thing you know, I've ended up with a 54-metre. Large yacht, right? It's a big step up. It sounds like 100 feet. 100 feet is like four times the volume, no, four, six times the volume, right? So it's massive. But what I, and I, and I charted boats over time and that experience was a bit clunky to say the least. Um, and, um, and then I owned a boat and I felt, and I found that the experience was also quite clunky as an owner trying to connect with charterers and stuff. So it was a dinner conversation of, of sort of, you know, Ellie, who's CEO of, of Ahoy Club, um, and, and rightfully so, she's a, she's a champ. So she's 25 and she's, uh, but in her early stages, she was working out a dial a dump in the call center. 
which teaches you a lot, right? Teaches that base service, uh, customer service thing right from the phone call. Then she was out selling bin bags, no idea we had, which is probably the hardest thing in the world to do. And so she learnt sales in that. She then ducked off for a while and, and worked at um, a fast food place, I think, Cali Press or one of those places. And I was a bit upset about that, but it was actually quite a good thing. Then she came back in, and then but in the in the in the time um, there, we uh, yeah around the dinner table was a bit about yachting and stuff. So the idea was birthed in 2015, and it was it was in 2018, nearly four years to the day, that we launched in Khan uh, Ahoy Club. So the fact that the um, the family's involved, Ellie in particular, it's her business really, right? She's the one, that's for sure. The family of we're all behind, same thing. We're all here to make sure everybody succeeds in their own area. Um, the Louv kids are all pretty, I suppose, their own person. So mixing and blending them all together, it's not gonna work. So uh, Larissa and I's job as parents is to see these guys all have their own niche um, area. Ellie's is, is definitely the, the rightful boss of a Hoy Club, that's for sure. Edward still works in the waste industry. That was, uh, that was his, uh, that was his choice. He loved it. He, he liked it. He was on ex and, and, and it's funny, the influence he obviously created his parents. He used to come out to work and be on a 45-tonne excavator. I found a photo of it when he was like seven years of age, right? It's pretty cool, right? Little kid and he could drive a big, big machine. Lara, Lara's very smart, middle one, running through uh, uni, working at a hoi club. She'll do something amazing in her life, but it's not sure what that is yet. And then I got my twin boys, 19, and Lara refers to them as the social experiment, right? So, the family experiment, rather. And I'll tell you for why. She, because Max goes to university and Jack doesn't. So they, they've both chosen their different paths. So Lara thinks that's the family experiment. So we'll keep you informed on how that goes. One thing my kids have got is they, and what they know is they have to work. You know, if they don't work, then they've got a problem. I want them to live at home until they're married. I did the same thing. There's nothing wrong with that, right? Um, and, and they're welcome to do that and I, I encourage it. But when it comes, if you're not going to work, you're not going to survive my home anyway, right? Or any of our houses, right? So they, uh, and they get that. And I tell them when they're 18 that, uh, I've said it to at all their, at all their birthdays, uh, that when they're 18 is that, you know, your money's your freedom. My money's not their freedom, right? So they get it. They have to own their own stuff. And, and, um, and it keeps it interesting for them, all right? And you see a lot of different people grow up in different ways. So we are quite hard, I suppose. Is the, I don't know what the word is. It's not tight, far from tight, but definitely firm about a work ethic in our family. They've all got it, and I'm very proud to say uh, yeah, they understand it, and they're the uh, same as my parents did for me. If their feet come off the ground, then we, we knock them back down. Just on Ahoy Club, so you, it, it launched in 2018. As I understand, there were some early challenges with, with certain uh, marinas and, uh, and yacht clubs in, in Europe. How's the response been since that time? Has it been more positive from both marinas and, and yacht clubs around the world, but also from, from customers? I compare um, Ahoy Club coming into the market, like Bingo coming into the market, isn't it funny? It's like, I feel like I've already read the script before it's all unfolded, right? I really do. Okay, so the way that everybody behaved when Ahoy Club came along was absolutely expected. The incumbent does not like a new person coming in we were noisy and disruptive, if that's the word they want to use. We were just trying to improve a system, right? So we, we came in and um, our opposition made us well-known very quickly. I couldn't have performed a better marketing campaign with $10 million to what we did, the way we ended the market, right? 
So that was good. So Ahoy Club is well known on a global scale. That's not so, that's not so easy to, to happen, right? So we're known. That usually take, would take 10 years. We're four years in. We were, we were six months in and we were known. Okay, so that, that was great. So, yeah, there's been resistance, but I think that's normal. There's resistance to every, every, um, every, every like I say, the incumbent don't like change. doesn't matter what business you're in. Even when Bingo came along, you know, he's dialed it down, but I'm the, I'm the incumbent, you know. I think I'm the boss, right? I'm the, I'm the guy. Don't, don't mess in my turf, buddy. All right? So when they want to come to you or do something with you, you put your foot in their face, all right? And, and, then, and then, the, then the rumours start from the whole industry. Oh, they're working too cheap. They'll go broke and all that sort of stuff. Next year, they turn up. Next year, they turn up. So then all of a sudden, they just keep coming. So they don't go broke, that everybody says again. That's, that's the first thing that comes out of it come out. That company won't last. They'll go broke. But when they keep turning up, you look like a fool because you've told all your employees. I didn't do that, right? I, I know what it's like, right? But our, the whole industry was disturbed by bingo coming into the industry because they provided a good service and they were cheap. Right? That's like, whoa, you're doing both those things? <laughs> and, and to their credit, they just kept going and kept going and kept going. And Daniel grew up quickly and, 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 and the family there created a great business and they made quite a lot of um, acquisitions. So in contrast to dial it up, I was... Um, a professor at university once told me that, you know, you've done really well, Ian, but you probably could have grown faster. And I, thought, I was bloody insulted. The <laughs> <laughs> difference is that, that Bingo was, was, was a great example of a business that, that, that did grow by acquisition. I was a great example of a business that grew with no acquisition, meaning I didn't buy another company out. Yeah, I bought properties that we then had to get DAs to, to develop our business on. So slower path, um, slower but arguably very structured path. Merging by acquisition, you've got different systems to bring together. Even bins, you've got different bins to bring together. Are they the same or not? Everything in our fleet was uniform. It was all interchangeable. So there's a lot of civilised structure or, or, or formalised structure that I, I much preferred. But then when the two came together, there's this, there's, this constant, there's this constant, now what's right, market share or profitability? And there is a balance in service, right? So there's, a, there's always that balance. So going back to why... All of those learnings come, bring me into the yachting industry um, and every business I talk about now. The incumbent doesn't like anybody new. They'll call you disruptive. They'll call you anything they can. Right? They'll call you drug dealers, all right, if they can to make people be scared of the one coming in. Right? How do you overcome that? You just keep going. I think there's a great saying, you never tell your opposition when they make a mistake, when they're making mistakes, right? And we have witnessed it unanimously, like, you, you like unbelievably through this industry and it's been really enjoyable. Right? Because they have come at us quite hard and it's like, we're up for that. Like, it's actually probably what drives me the most, right, to succeed. The, the, we have a family culture and lucky enough to have the culture and, 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 and be able to stand by the culture of service first. If we lose money to provide a service for our customer, that's fine. I'm not going to sit here and something goes wrong and argue about you have to give me some more money because something happened. I'll solve your problem first. Then I'll worry about who should have paid for it. Right? And I think that's, that's, just, that's just normal business. So we're having a great time in, a, in an industry that is um, really sexy industry, obviously. Big boats, everybody wants to be around them. It's a good time. You step on a boat and your whole demeanour changes. You're just a bit more relaxed. And I'm sure there's, look, I'm sure there's 1% or less of the world that don't like boats. But the other 99% seem to. And it doesn't matter what size it is. It doesn't matter if it's little or big. 
that's not the point, right? Boats just seem, for blokes anyway, just seem to have this thing, I've got this boat, can I get a bigger one, can I get a bigger one, right? So that's fine, that's a bloke thing. <laughs> but for people generally, there's nothing more enjoyable than, than, than being on the water. I think, I think one of the successes of my business career in a construction sense was that I had a boat. I was able to take clients out on the boat, have a good time with them on my time frame, on a relaxed atmosphere, have a few drinks and build proper relationships. So it's another thing. And in the building industry, relationships is everything. It's one thing that people very easily forget. Relationships really are important in any business. So the boating's helped me inadvertently through my life all the way. And so I'm you know, very lucky that such a nice thing is, is helping me along. So to, to look into it where we are now in a Hoy Club, we're four years in and we just keep turning up. COVID turned us a little bit internally. The France office was there, but Ellie didn't really visit, couldn't visit. So what that did, they put a massive focus on our Australian market. Australia, to be honest, is a market that if we weren't Australian, we probably wouldn't bother with it. You know, it's, it's a small percentage. Europe is 80% of the charter market when it goes for real, right, for the term charter. Term charter being more than a day charter. So we have a hoi day, and that's really that Australian market. You know, getting a day boat for our corporate crews out on this beautiful harbour we've got um, is, is that's the Sydney Harbour way during summer, you know, and uh, party on the boats, big numbers on the boats, great fun. Uh, overseas though, term charters, super yachts, mega yachts, all those types of things, that's, uh, that's, that's the European. So 80% of the market's Europe, 20% is the rest of the world. So we got to very, very, very much focus on the Australian market, what we're doing here, systems, 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 right? And now we're a massive part of the team are going over to Europe this year. To, so for the girls, it's a, it's a male-dominant industry. We've got a t Ellie's built a team of, of young girls, really smart, really nimble, with awesome tech to support them. And a lot of them get to go and travel this year and, and do that. So their career is, is, is hard work, same culture through us, but, geez, it's fun, right? And, yeah, it's really fun. So four years on, some 4,000 professionally crewed vessels available across the world, which is an extraordinary achievement. What makes the experience of booking and using a Hoy Club different to some of those traditional brokerage and chartering businesses? So what makes, it, what makes the difference of what we bought, which was frowned upon, was, was the availability to show you 4,000 yachts. Each brokerage was showing 10, 20, whatever, whatever they may manage, let's say. We just said, look, when you come, just make a decision. We don't mind who we sell to. And we also believe we can do it cheaper because the, the, the commissions were actually very large. And we just knew we could do it for less. And we know we can, and we just know we can, right? And we're doing it for less. Right? The, the, the industry carries with it a commission structure in the order of 20%. For me to sign one contract with you and to take a big number, a million dollar yacht, it means I'd get $200,000 for signing that one contract for one week. I'm the guy that was happy with 100 bucks when I started in my business. So $200,000 to me is a lot of money. So if we sign that contract, we'll receive 70,000, all right? And the client will get to, to keep $130,000 in their pocket, which keeps them coming back. 70,000, and by the way, that might be euro, 70,000 euro for signing a contract, it's a lot of money. It's very easy world in the yachting world for everyone to lose sight of money and value, right? And that's what, that's what happens. I'm, I'm the guy that sort of likes to say, well, you just still got to provide people with value. I think it's really important. And you're off to Europe on Monday, as are a lot of Australians and a, a lot of people from across the world over the next coming few weeks and months ahead. What's your, what's your gauge on how busy it'll be over there from a yacht chartering perspective? How are you finding booking numbers? Charter this year, it's going to be, it's going to be a great season. It's already it's shaping up to be a great season. Last year, last year was a strong season. COVID and all, COVID, there's a flight to boats, that's for sure. This year is looking uh, very busy. 
We've got a, quite a very new unknown about what's going on. You know, there's a war going on overseas. You know, we all know what's going on with that war, so how that's affecting everything. I'd need to get there to really get the feel for it, and we'll see, but I think in the boat purchasing side in the last three weeks, there is a softening. It's been going gangbusters too high. It's been very... It's been a seller's market, and if you want to buy a boat, you have to pay a lot. That's fine. Everyone wants them. Everyone's enjoying life. And maybe, maybe all these things like COVID have made everyone realise, you know, one life and let's, let's make it the most, which is fantastic. I think the charter market is very, very busy. The availability of good yachts um, is, is always... They're always going to be popular. Um, part of the market with the war is going to be taken out of that um, in some ways, but some of the boats won't be available and the customers won't be. But there's always your big markets in Europe, you know. There's the Americans... There's the Arabs, there's everybody, right? There's, the world is always... There's always somebody out of play in the world. We're one year for whatever it is, but everyone else is in play. And, and Europe is, you know, there's a, there's a whole summer there where it does not rain, all right? It's, it's, and then you're on boats. It's, it's the best playground in the world, OK? So, you know, there's a reason why everyone flocks to it, right? So the season kicks off with the Cannes Film Festival next week. That's how it all starts. It overlaps then with the, the Monaco Grand Prix, which everyone loves. Drive to Survive is, is making that F1 even more popular. Um, so there's a huge contingent roaring in there. And there's... there's so for, for a piece of intel for you is that there's 100 boats that would, did not get into the Monaco Grand Prix this year that would like to go in. There was 100 rejected. No, sorry, when I reject, there was no room. So that's, that, that's, a, huge, that's a huge demand wanting to come into that. And, 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 and if you like racing, it's great, but it's just fun. I can imagine the excitement and the atmosphere, you know, it's... it's, uh, it's yeah. So Europe, Europe's fun, that's for sure. It's a big season ahead and, like, like I say, you, you go into Europe where it doesn't rain for that, that long, it's, uh, it's a different space to be in. I thought we'd close out our discussion with a few more general questions and I know there's some entertaining going on downstairs, so I'll try and wrap this up quickly. Firstly, in terms of celebrating success, massive in the US, as you know, quite big in, in Europe, we perhaps don't do it as well as those sort of regions here in Australia. Why do you think that is? Why do you think there's a culture here of almost wanting to tear people down rather than build them up? I don't, I don't know how to answer that. It, it, it's, it's each to their own. I think there's a couple of couple of sayings that I have. Is, is one, the pioneers will always have their arrows in the back, right? And and I think I think the most relevant to that is that everyone likes to see you do well, but no one likes to see you do too well, right? And I think that that does sum it up. People, it, it turns from people following you through your success, and then what are you meant to do? Stop. And then I think that people, which you're not, you can't. You know, you've, you've got to keep going if you're going to succeed. You can't stop halfway, or you won't succeed. So I think when you consider that everyone likes to see you do well, no one likes to see you do too well, I think that sums it up. Is it different in Australia to everywhere else? I don't really know. You know, we say that here we tear down our sort of a tall poppy pull down. I, 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 I suppose I, I, I certainly don't get distracted with it. I also don't think I've been as exposed to it. I could be wrong because I don't take any notice of it, right? I sort of couldn't give a damn, right? I've done what I've done and I'm very proud of what I've done. And, and because I think the one thing people do know about me is that I have done it from ground up. So I think that that's, that, that has had a respect. I haven't really had a situation where I've been cannibalised for being successful. You are, sorry, well, people want to throw it at you. When it suits them, it does. But I take no notice of it, right? None. So I suppose it's how you receive that 
Sorry, that was a very long-winded way around it because I'm... I... <laughs> That's good. What about, what about uh, key lessons for success? You mentioned the importance of building relationships, customer service. What else do you think? The key learnings for, for business are pretty simple. Good service, good value, be honest, don't rip your clients off. Relationships are everything, yeah? And your relationship means you're really genuinely servicing your, your customer. The simplest one of all is know your product well. You can't sell something you don't know well, right? So they're, they're just very simple things. Hard work brings it all home. You've got to work smart. You've got to be smart. Um, but you've got to turn up to work and work. You can't... You, if it takes 12 hours in a day, 14, 20 hours in a day, so be it. That's the deal. If you're going to work, work. If you're going to holiday, holiday. Right? But when you're going to work, go to work. Overcoming challenges, have you, have you gone about that over your career, over, overcoming periods of uh, uncertainty, periods of difficulty? When you're in business and starts to grow and, and do things and, and how do you overcome your uncertainties, every day brings with it something new. Um, you get better at this stuff, things come along and they, they look the same. They look a little bit different but you've been through that experience before so there's no doubt about it, the longer you're in business you do become good at it, right? You can become better at it and things that, things that my, my kids now white trip over go, no, 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 we don't do that. This is, this is why. So we can st save them stumbling over a few things that they may have. Still, they've got to, uh, they'll, they're, they're taught to test the boundaries so they will still make mistakes, all right? And they'll test old ground and sometimes they'll get through it. I've had a series of, uh, I suppose, arguably tough moments, like so many. But what are they? They're, they're my tough moments are probably not the business stuff. That's the... That's the stuff that supplies you with the money to go and have a good time, right? So why do I do it? That's why, right? I can do what I like when I like and I'm very proud of it, right? So I don't, I don't make any excuses for that comment at all. Why do I have that attitude? I was 26, my, six of my mates were killed in a plane accident. One was my brother-in-law who I'd been to school with, one was my cousin. Um, that was a tough moment in our life. That was, 20, that was just six months after I was married. <laughs> that was an unbelievable day, right? And you've got to, point at that point you can wilt and, and, and it can change your life one way or the other. I think what we all, our whole group learned from that was to enjoy ourselves and live hard, work hard, you know, the old work hard, play hard. Definitely, definitely one of those believers in that. Later in my life my sister committed suicide right in front of me, right, and jumped off the gap. That was a, that was a shit day. It was a very bad day, right? Again, you've got a choice to, to buckle under that or or not, and as sad as that was, you can't destroy your own life or the life of everyone around you for it. So it was like, will I ever get over it? No, do you learn to live with it? Yes, that's what death is. So the work, anything that comes up in work for me is not, not life-threatening. So I can see through, straight through it, work straight through it, I still go to bed at night and sleep, right? It's that human element of your family and your friends and that that really matters. The rest of it doesn't mean squat. So that's my perspective, which makes it very clear. Right? So you'll see me when there's a, when whatever's going on, there can be bombs going off everywhere around me. I just, you, say, you can see straight through what you need to see. And that's easy. So, and in boating and everything, it's like you can't panic. Right? If you're out in the sea, you can't panic. So there's no such thing as panic in our DNA, in our family or anything like that. There's no such thing. You've got a huge amount of, of knowledge and energy and, and insight. Where, where do you see opportunities in the next sector? You're in yacht chartering with the Hoy Club. You, as I understand, you do some property development as well. Through the family office, or, or maybe it's a, a venture that you haven't explored yet, but where do you see uh, industries that could be ripe for disruption if you see them? 
look, there's lots going on in the world. There's all this tech space, which we pretend to understand or not. Uh, there's so many things going on. The move, the, one thing for sure, one thing for certain, everything moves faster and faster and faster and faster. And you can either go with that or not, but that's fun, right? So things that... Got, I remember when we used to have to set up a printer. You know, now, now I think I'm showing my age. I, I really was on the edge of... There was no computers when I started business. And the day we had to set up a printer, I remember you'd bring in a fully qualified guy who could sometimes take up to eight hours to get that printer working with your big computer, right? Now I can do it myself in three minutes. Well, someone in my office can, right? But that was, that was like, you know, that sounds like, again, this like, a, wow, am I really that old? And, and it's true. I don't think disruptions, I think it's a word that's overused. I think, I think improvement is really what it is. If you're disrupting something, you're improving or making better. I, I think disruptions, again, an incumbent thing to say you're disrupting something actually means you're making a nuisance of yourself and you're not. You're making something better. So for us, everything we've done in the Ahoy world and the yachting world is, is causing constant improvement and we will continue to do that. And tech is a big part of that, you know, just electronic stuff, not old contracts. You've got to used to sign them and then you're, you're out there, the old fax machine, all that sort of stuff. Now it's all, you know, quicker. As far as other things that are out there, the medical area of, and stem cells in particular is something that has a huge interest for myself, family office, whatever you want to call us, huge. So massive investment into that, um, into the right area. I'm a huge believer in it. I've had them myself, right? They're illegal here in the country and they shouldn't be. They, um, you can go to Panama and they're making autistic children non-autistic. And everyone can throw rocks at it if they like. Right? It's just like, if you haven't seen it, then don't knock it. It's not, there's no downside. First hand, we've sent a child from here who is autistic to have the stem cells and the improvement in them in one treatment alone was significant. Like I say, it's a place that's making cripples walk um, and autistic children non-autistic they cure MS. So I'm not selling anything here, right, by the way, but it's just something that's out there. So do I see, again, going to that life focus, that this is the sort of stuff that's real, it's there, it works. For the knockers, don't worry about it, all right? Don't worry about it, don't, don't listen, don't go, but don't comment. Anyone who needs that type of help should go, right? Can change your life. So that, that needs to be rolled out across the world, right? And there's a lot of resistance to it. There's a lot of misinterpretation about it. Everyone thinks when they hear stem cells that there's some unborn fetus where they've taken the cells out of it. It's not true. That's not correct. They're the cells that can mutate and do all that sort of stuff. This is the stuff that comes out of the umbilical cord. I won't claim to be a genius, all right? And when I invested a significant chunk of money into my CEO at the time, said he said, this is a real leap of faith. I said, it is, but we... We know what we're looking at here. We've experienced it. It's, it's amazing. So, yeah, that's, that's massive focus for us. If you want to say, what's, what am I going to do in my life that's going to, to make the biggest impact on mankind? Supporting that will be the biggest by far. So energy from waste is a passion that I have here, and we have a sleepy state that's trying to resist it. But in comparison to the stem cells and what they do for people and life-changing stuff, which at the end of the day is all that matters. That's the one, by far. These, by far the most significant. Ian Maloof, one of the great Australian business success stories of all time and one of the most insightful leaders we've had on our program. Thanks so much for your time once again. Thanks, Rob.